Welcome to the Start, Scale, Succeed podcast with me, your host, Nicole Higgins, the Buy and Retail Coach, sharing tips, advice, and insight from entrepreneurs that have just launched to multi-million pound business owners. We will be discussing the challenges they faced, advice they would give, and the milestones they achieved and how they got there. Also joining me will be a broad range of experts with some tips and practical how-tos, episodes that will help your business grow and to enable you to live the life you crave. The types of experts that you'll hear from will be those that you will find beneficial as you start and scale your business, from branding and social media experts to mindset coaches in PR and marketing. There will also be solo episodes from me discussing a variety of topics from sourcing to maximizing the profit in your business. Welcome to the Start, Scale, Succeed podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Helpy, founder of resale platform Escadi, which is the largest pre-owned boutique with about 3,000 designers from Chanel to Rixo. So it's really got from your mid-market to super looks. Escadi's belief is that a business should leave the world a better place than they found it. And Escadi brings beautiful pre-loved pieces to more people more often. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sarah. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, I found resale very interesting, and we're going to talk, a couple of things that we're going to talk about t- today are obviously your story and, and how the, the business came about, but also we're going to talk about resale versus rental, how people can introduce maybe resale into their own business. And uh, one of the stats I read uh, recently is that within the next you know, couple of years, resale is going to be a bigger business than fast fashion. It's going to be worth about $64 billion. So I wouldn't, I don't know whether to call it a movement, but as a business opportunity as a market it's definitely a growing and thriving one mm-hmm. that's exciting isn't it I know <laughs> we absolutely. can only help <laughs> <laughs> yes so um Sarah before we get into Escadi let's talk about you and and your background and how this all came about Sure. Um, So my background is a bit all over the place, uh, which used to not make a lot of sense until I started a business. So uh, I'm Canadian by background. I've been in the UK about 10 years. And uh, out of my MBA long too long ago, now that I think about what year that was, uh, out of my MBA, I did some time in banking. And then I moved to the UK and I got stuck in at eBay, uh, started working in their finance team, moved around in the finance team, started working with marketing. And then after leaving the business for a year, uh, I then was hired back into the marketing team and moved around there quite a lot, which was a real learning experience. I Mm. absolutely loved it. And being in a business and a brand like eBay, um, especially through the pandemic, was uh, it was just fascinating. It was really a pulse of culture uh, here in the UK. Um, but what I began to notice uh, in through the course of my work was that there were so many new marketplaces and competitors that were chipping away at that core auction business. Mm-hmm. And that, as a consumer, I found that exciting. I had been buying pre-owned here and there, uh, mostly through eBay. Uh, so I started checking all these new marketplaces out and it was exciting and then immediately frustrating because... I would never take the time to go shop across all of them, yeah. look like search all those different ones, save uh, items to all those different platforms. Inevitably, they go out of stock. You've got to start again. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where the idea came from. I thought, why can I find a hotel easily or find a flight easily through a comparison website or even find insurance easily, <laughs> something yeah. boring like insurance? And then uh, that's where the idea came from. So I sat on it for a while. Uh, And then I left eBay in May of 2021 and thought, um, this is it. I'm just going to give this a go. I was 
just really craving something different. I really wanted to kind of get my hands dirty and start, I guess, feeling creative and productive uh, in a very different way than what you would get sort of at a director level in a big company. And so you started scoping out the the viability of the business in 2021. How What did that look like? What did you do? Yeah, so I um, first... I had my own problem and I needed to validate that other people had that problem. So I went through a structured research approach. So I looked for people first that um, would self-identify and I used a, different, a few different ways of finding these people, but people that would say, I'm a master at buying pre-owned, like no matter how many hurdles there are, I know what to do. Mm-hmm. I know where to, I know where to go and I know how to get what I want. And I found these people and I interviewed them and I process mapped every single step that they did. And then I had the exact same process map and then interviewed people that would identify as strugglers. So I try and buy pre-owned, but I get stuck or lost. And that allowed me to build a heat map, essentially, of where the key problems were in that process map. Some people didn't go through all the steps, but you started to get a real sense for where people fell out of this shopping process. And it was largely around the same problems that I experienced. And then there were other problems that, we're not going to be within the scope of my business. So like returns, for example. Um, But they were all sort of centered around a few key themes. And that allowed me to essentially design an initial set of features for a website, which is what you see or a version of what you see today on the Escadi.com. And so explain how, how it works. Yeah. Um, So for, if you're looking for something, it's free for you to use. Just like if you went on Trivago and looked for a hotel, uh, it's free for you to find what you need. So you go on there and you search for, uh, I don't know, Chanel 255 bag. Uh, you see a list of results from multiple different marketplaces and you can save results into a single wish list, even if they're on different websites. Say you find three Chanel 255 bags that look interesting you can then go into your wish list and you can pull out those three items and compare them side by side. So you can see that one looks like that. That's mm-hmm. where it's from. Uh, this is the price. And you can start to compare a lot more easily than you would going across all these different websites and having a hundred tabs open. You can also save designer. So if you're really into Chanel and you never want to miss a Chanel item that pops up on one of these resale websites, you can save that. And then on our homepage, you'll be able to see brand new in um, from designers that you love. Um, you can also easily understand authentication of these different platforms. So we've created a gold, silver, bronze categorization. So bronze is essentially uh, the platform doesn't help you authenticate. It's a peer-to-peer marketplace, a yeah. bit like eBay on most things. And then gold is where the resale platform actually buys the stock. So these are really specific consignment shops where they're taking a financial risk on the item. So you know that their authentication is top notch. Silver is a number of different approaches, which kind of sit in the middle of those two things. Um, So it's free for you to use. uh, And then you find what you're looking for and you click off and you complete the transaction with that particular resale platform or consignment shop. And then for the consignment shops or the platforms themselves, they send us product data and we aggregate that data, we organize it. And that's how we've created the Ascati website. And what they do, they see us as a a cost-effective way of finding high intent traffic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they are looking for new customers, new growth. 
uh, we pay or they pay us, excuse me, on a percentage of every sale. So it's very low risk. It's not like Google where you're paying for clicks that may not convert. Yeah. They're only paying for when traffic that we send them uh, actually buys something. And how long did the process take from when you were doing that research to actually, so you very newly launched, so just yes. February 1st yes. uh, this year. So congratulations. Thank and you. how um, that process to, to, to get to there, how long did that take? Um, so I, I had an initial briefing document for like what the features that I wanted in September. And I was looking at two options. One, because I'm not a coding software type person and, and with the amount of data we have and the actual functionality of the website, it's not a typical like Shopify type thing that you can set yeah. up. So I had, uh, I was going to do a no code agency, which are no code is like a type of language that well doesn't use code, but um, it's very sort of quick and easy to get up and running. You can iterate on it quickly, um, but essentially it's a product that you eventually kind of throw away if you like and get something custom coded at the same time I was looking for a tech co-founder and so that process was running alongside I was trying to figure out how to build this and luckily I found uh the tech co-founder of my dreams (laughs) and his name is yeah his name is Davide and he joined in October um and he built the initial website uh in probably six weeks so it was a, a real whiz. So we had it live to a closed group towards the back end of last year. So maybe about six months to answer your question. Mm-hmm. And then we were sort of working on it in the background um, before we publicly launched on Feb 1st. And why do you think that resale, and like I said, in terms of that stat, in terms of how, how big it's going to grow to, what do you think are the reasons behind that? I think if you look at the reasons why people buy resale, um, it's seen as a beacon of sort of sustainability when it comes to fashion. But actually, when you dig in and you speak to people, the number one reason is related to financial. Either they get more for the same budget or they get what they want for less. So there's different dimensions of value that by far and away um, are the leading reasons why people buy resale. Um, And then there's the sort of... I guess, discovery amongst consumers that you can get something unique. So, you know, you're going to find something in the resale market that even if it was, you know, two years old, you're not likely to see somebody wearing like that exact same thing walking down the high street. Uh, Whereas, you know, you buy buy the latest fashion trends and, and you probably will. But I think how do consumers get to understand all of this is within the last few years, just like I was saying when I was at eBay, there's a number of new marketplaces that are heavily funded. They advertise quite a lot um, in the UK and in the US and major sort of Western European markets. Um, and that sort of raised the profile of yeah. resale overall. And then from a selling point of view, a lot of people look at it as a way to clear out and make cash. It's removed the stigma as well, because when people are thinking previously, instead of saying pre-owned or pre-loved, it was secondhand. And it has yeah, a or used. Yeah, even or used. used. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it has a very different, you know, I suppose in some people's mind, connotation between what's secondhand mm-hmm. and used versus what's pre-owned or pre-loved. Yes. And, um, so I think that, and like, like you've said, in terms of some of the platforms that have come up and they might, they would operate differently to yours, but like Debop and Vinted and, you know, and like you say, raising their profile in terms of the ads that you see Vinted run and, mm-hmm. and the, um, the customer demographic that they target. Who's your particular, who's your type of customer? 
Um, so in my research, I came across two really distinct segments. Um, the one, the first one is the kind of depop generation, which is younger Gen Z. Um, not, and this is not, this is a generalization. It's not exclusively true, but that segment tends to be buying lower priced items. They are turning over their wardrobe a lot more mm -hmm. quickly. Um, and many of them are actually accessing resale as a way, almost in a similar kind of way to fast fashion. Yeah. So they only want to be seen in something once and they don't want to have to pay fast fashion prices. So they'll just find a fast fashion item in the resale market and that saves the money. Um, there's then sort of a millennial uh, Gen X sort of segment, which is still concerned with uh, that getting value for money, but they're also more interested in unique pieces. In particular, if you get into the high end, uh, those those customers looking for unique pieces will pay, you know, just as much as something brand new, if not more, if it's, yeah. if it's really rare um, and it can be seen as more of like a, I don't want to say a status symbol, that's not the right word, but definitely like an attention getting sort of piece. Um, and that's more our market. Mm -hmm. uh, we're less into the sort of uh, resale fast fashion, word, word, turnover word, quickly. Turn, yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure that absolutely still happens in the high end, you know, mm -hmm. people coming into the market and wearing it a couple of times and then either selling it again or whatnot. But we want to encourage buying more high quality pieces uh, and then especially in the resale market because they're made to last. And so can the general public then repost their products, that anything that they've bought back on your website or do you deal with more? Business. No, we're we're totally um, buying focused. So right, not, okay. but, and there are some other new businesses out there that uh, essentially do what we do, but the other way. So you list it with them once, and then they split it out into all these platforms. But we're focused on the buying side rather than the selling. Obviously, rental has been on the rise as well. What's your take on resale versus rental? Um, so I read something recently that um, I don't know why this didn't occur to me but it makes complete sense. But rental is, it's not as great as everybody thinks it is simply because of the dry cleaning, which mm -hmm. is like horribly polluting um, and the transport. So from a sort of carbon footprint, uh, actually the study that I read not that long ago uh, had rental as almost as bad, if not as bad as disposing of fashion. Mm -hmm. If you, were to manage the logistics differently and the cleaning differently, it could be better. Um, but from a sustainability point of view, resale, uh, if you're looking at a like-for-like -like purchase or like-for-like -like item um, is better for the environment than rental. The other thing about rental is um, I don't think anybody's found a way to make it work profitably. Mm -hmm. um, so imagine starting a fashion business where 100% of your items were going to be returned. <laughs> Like yeah. nobody would, nobody would want to do that. Um, and then there are different models. Like there's peer to peer where sort of the users are, or the customers, buyers or seller, I guess, renters and rentees. <laughs> uh, they are responsible for managing all of this stuff between them. Um, and then there are other ones where they like rent the runway, which buy inventory. And I mean, the working capital to have that kind of business model is immense, especially in the high end. And as we've seen through COVID, those business models are particularly vulnerable to, you know, sort of event-based um, yeah, disruptions. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, 
I think it's an important part of the mix. Um, you know, it's great that customers have options to uh, not buy something new, but I wouldn't say that, yeah, I think it is. it needs to be taken in the balance. Like sort of all of a sudden renting all of your clothes may not be the right approach either. So it's yeah. good to have, yeah, it's good to have options. And like you say, I think rental is great for occasion wear, Mm-hmm. Where, whereas resell, if you want to update your wardrobe or you want to find some investment pieces that you know you want to own for a period of time, not yes, just exactly. have access to, that you, yeah. you know, that you get that. And you talked about working capital there in terms of for businesses that are a rental business. Um, and I read a post that you posted on LinkedIn earlier before our chat about funding and that you're mm-hmm. very strongly focused on funding the business yourself. Are there any particular mm-hmm. reasons behind that? Yeah, there's a, a few. Um, so first of all, our business model is, um, you know, one angle on resale, uh, and there are a few. So, when, you know, when I thought about how could I solve customer problems that I'd heard in my research, you know, there are, if you were to basically um, think about all the problems in a resale shopping journey and create a single business that would solve all of those. So it would, it would basically be like the Amazon of resale. Mm-hmm. It's a wholly unprofitable venture, and that's why nobody's done that. So everybody's taking kind of different angles. So some people, um, some businesses will buy the inventory full on, uh, and then they take ownership of the stock, you know, risk with that. Um, then other business models are on consignment only. So they will charge maybe at 30, 40, 50% of the transaction price, but they will market it. They will mm-hmm. clean it. You know, they'll, they'll basically get it all ready to go. They don't actually own it. So if it doesn't sell and the rest of them, then there's models like eBay where they are managing the transaction and the payments on their platform, but there's no real, that like it's peer to peer, you know, sort of buyer beware type thing. Um, that has its own, that has its own issues. You know, you need to dispute, you have, you eventually have buyer seller disputes and you have to settle them and keep both people happy and so on. So our model is we don't have any, um, we don't have any payments uh, on our platform. So you click off and complete with somebody like an eBay. Mm-hmm. And we also don't have any inventory, um, which makes it a very light touch business model. Um, and also there was nothing out there like it. So I yeah. knew I could differentiate because there just, there was a lot of white space. Exactly. Yeah. There was a lot of white space. Um, so even still though, that requires, you know, some funding, I suppose. So I'm lucky that I have a, a very savvy technical person. So we haven't had to spend anything on the actual development of the website or updating it or recoding it, adding features. He's awesome like that. Mm-hmm. But we do have, you know, marketing expenses, like run the business, et cetera. And, you know, all of last year I was, um, I knew I had to get back into having a salary. So for full transparency, I'm, you know, single parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I started this venture, you know, I thought, Somebody said to me, um, listen, you just raise a bit of money, pay yourself a little salary and just keep going and it'll be all fine. Uh, <laughs> and when you get into the nitty gritty of uh, just raise a bit of money, well, that's like a six month process yeah. uh, that a lot of people say is um, excruciating Hellish. and demoralizing <laughs> at times. Especially if you're doing, it depends which route you go down, but like yeah. for some businesses, Kickstarter works for other businesses, it doesn't. And then you don't know. And then you've got whether you go for investment and people have percentages, you know. Yes, it, it's a 
full undertaking. So yeah, lot, just raise a bit of money, big big deal. Um, and the actual amount of pay that I could take out of my business through investor capital before we start generating meaningful revenue uh, is pretty small. I mean, as understandably, if you're an investor, you're paying, uh, your founders get their return in the future when they grow it to such a size that you exit, sell it, whatnot. Uh, they don't get their return now. So you get them, you give them enough to get by, but then all the other capital from investors goes back into business. Makes total logical sense unless you're a single parent living in London and mm. uh, um, one income. And it, through many different chats with uh, my co-founder, I just thought this whole process is just giving me huge anxiety. Like, yeah. you know, there's, it's like years of financial stress and strain in addition to the expectations of investors growing a business. And it just wasn't something that I wanted to do or could do actually. Like it just, it, I couldn't make the numbers really work without, you know, moving to the countryside and taking yeah. my daughter out of school and like all sorts of like really, really drastic life changes. Um, so the other thing is that we are both mid-career. Uh, so when you come out of university and you start a business, you eventually you sort of look at the market and you can like, I can go work entry level in a company for 30 grand a year, or I can get paid running my own business for 30 grand a year. If I mm-hmm. raise some money, like it's a no brainer. Whereas for my co-founder and I, we are both mid career. So we can get a market rate of pay that yeah. allows us to subsidize and put capital into the business that way. And there are some, more sort of organic marketing approaches that we're now, you know, looking to try through, you know, PR, uh, social, SEO, content, et cetera, that can be outsourced. Like I don't need to sit there and do it all day long. So I can kind of go out there and, you know, make the bread and butter if you like. And, um, and then sort of manage uh, in my off hours and people that are actually doing that work. So that's what we're going to try. Um, yeah. And as soon as we d- agreed that, I was just instantly relieved. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's on our terms. So that was the thing I wanted to keep was the kind of control and accountability to just ourselves. Um, yeah. So and that's, that's, that's been, completely understandable. I think, you know, people want to, a lot of people want to start a business so that they have more freedom and they have, they can live a life on their terms. Whereas if you get investors involved, you are reporting, you are, you know, yeah, and, it's, exactly. and you're then at a bit of a, you know, in terms of their beck and call, in terms of what's maybe needed or, or when it's needed and the decisions in the business aren't fully your own then, mm, you know, exactly. with you and, and your founder. And he, um, his name's Davide, I keep just calling him my co-founder, and um, his name's Davide. Davide. And he actually came from a world of startups Mm-hmm. And he's seen a lot of capital go into businesses and he's seen a lot of poor decisions come out of having a lot of cash. And yeah. in a bootstrap business, you make decisions around profitability rather than revenue and you grow slower. And maybe you never, ever get, well, you probably never get to be as big. You maybe don't go international. You just stay in the UK, but you grow with lower overhead and that allows you to sort of stay profitable and sustainable over the long term. So it was actually him that, um, you know, he was saying, you need to like, you need to make up your mind, like, were you one way or the other? Like, I don't mind, but <laughs> you've got to figure this out. And I just, I just kept thinking, like, if I bring on an investor, that's 
you can't get rid of them. Mm. (laughs) You know, you need, these are decisions that stay with you for the entire life of your company. And so I wasn't going to rush into anything, but bless me, it was like, you need to to pick something, but it, and it took me a while to get there, but I feel really relieved now. And, you know, I just think that the situation of a single parent um, is, you've got to have some level of security for your family. Um, And that wasn't something I had really appreciated when I set out to do this. It's just sort of the, you know, the fact that I would need to go to investors every 12 months and be begging for money to basically pay myself and feed my, feed my own daughter. Right. And it's, that's really scary. Um, Yeah. You don't want to put that in someone else's hands. You want to be able to control that yourself. Exactly. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel yeah, I feel really comfortable with that decision. But it's one of those ones when you go on LinkedIn, all you do is see people raising money. You think like that's just what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to raise money and grow. And you never really see the sort of other side of it, like how founders cope with it, what the impact is on their families, mm-hmm. you know, what is their mental health like? And that's actually stuff that started to surface in conversations, podcasts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Over the last few years, like through the pandemic, there's a lot of founders talking about mental health. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a tough journey. It's tough either way, um, but you know, choose your heart, I suppose. Yeah, but I suppose it's, you have a bit more, you have more control over the pace. And Yes, exactly. You know, and, and like you say, to grow at your pace and you're still able to then manage bringing in a salary through a day job or, you know, um, and not having everything to depend on the business and it can, you can make sensible decisions rather than rushed decisions uh, exactly. you know, to, to make sure that they're right for the business. And what do you think, I know that it's still very, it's all very, it's, it's still very new for you, but are there any things that you think, Oh God, I wish I'd done that differently. Or, you know, I wish I'd known that, you know, um, so I know I you've got a massive would... amount of experience. <laughs> so, you know, it's, but um, Probably some of the things I didn't know uh, are more about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I left eBay last year, I, you know, I felt a sense of freedom, definitely. Uh, and here I was like creating and speaking to people and feeling the real autonomy that I had every day uh, just to make my own decisions. I mean, sometimes, yes, it's like, if you don't do anything that day, nothing happens. Yeah. yeah. On the flip You're side, spinning right? all the plates. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I felt a real sense of freedom, both professionally and personally, not to be sort of tied to a busy corporate job. Um, and then the sort of COVID rules were relaxed and it was the summertime and I, you know, saw my family again, went on some holidays. Like it was a really great time. And then um, school went back in in September and like everybody went back to busy day jobs. And I was in this place of like trying to sign a co-founder, but not building anything yet. And like a real sense of isolation set in and actually like probably carried me through was just there all the time through probably all of like, the end part of last year and was a real factor in you know aside from the financial bit of it the real factor in like going back to a workplace Mm -hmm. um and having people around me and a momentum and a a team um you know especially as a single parent like it's a lonely job yeah and to add on the lonely job of being a founder in a very very early stage business is I i hadn't quite appreciated how that would feel um so that would be the main thing 
everything else, you know, I wish this had gone faster. I wish I'd done that quicker, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. If I had, if I had been further along, you know, and I had built a no code website and then I brought on a co-founder, you would have to have redone it. So, you know, there was things that didn't move as quickly, but it ended up working out. So. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of, it is very, and you know, clients have said it to me as well. And I feel it myself in terms of when you're, especially during COVID, you know, but when you're working on your own all the time, generally, you know, and people feed off other people and it's that momentum and energy and conversation. And even if it's not about, you know, if it's not about your business, it doesn't matter. You, you've mm-hmm. got ideas sparking and you've just got that, you know, a bit of more of a community around you because it can be yeah. really lonely when you're literally staring at your computer, sorting things out. And if, if, you, you, don't, if you don't feel like doing something, <laughs> it doesn't get done. And then you're like, oh yeah. gosh, okay, the, the list gets longer. Yeah. And what would you say for people that want to start? Um, well, actually, no, first, but in terms of if you are a small business and you want to bring resale into that, so if resale's going to grow and you're a small business and you want to bring that into your business, how would you suggest that people can do that? Um, so there's a couple of ways now that I've seen it happen. Uh, one is through white label solutions. So uh, there's companies like Reflant, uh, which provide sort of a B2B service. Um, and they essentially, I don't want to say this is going to oversimplify it, but they plug into you know a, re- a retailer's website and provide either a peer-to-peer or some other functionality, which facilitates a resale transaction on that retailer's website. Mm-hmm. And so for a brand, uh, you essentially get to keep those customers in the ecosystem, right? And yeah. there's, you know, maybe the actual resale transaction is not as profitable um, as maybe brand new uh, or you're cannibalizing a brand new sale. You know, there's a lot of risks and concerns about that. But you're keeping customers in your own ecosystem, mm-hmm. which can only be a good thing. You're keeping data on them at a time when it's hard to get customer data anywhere else. Um, and if you are offering a resale, um, point of entry into a brand, you know, you tend to attract people that are new to the brand that can't afford full price, that sort of thing. So lots of reasons. So white label, um, and I've also seen some of the top brands partnering with resale platforms. So for example, Alexander McQueen has, um, a partnership with Vestiaire where they have approved stock on Vestiaire's website. And so when a brand comes in like that and offers stock either through their own website or through a platform, you know, really gives a boost of credibility to resale overall because you know, it's authentic. And would that be say like overmakes or items that haven't been sold or something like that? that they Um, Or they, or you can go back, like, I think you can go back into Alexander McQueen stores with something you've bought from Alexander McQueen and they'll then give you a credit to continue spending in Alexander McQueen. And then the okay. stock will either be sold. I think for Alexander McQueen, it's um, it's sold. It's all sold through Vestiaire, I think. Right. Okay. So they'll have a collection point or whatever, and it exactly. would go to them. But it's like a one. It's one distribution center almost then for them as well. Great. And um, what tips would you give to people that want to set up their own business? And um, the first thing that I think goes for even the you know, brand new businesses uh, is to make sure that brand new businesses to establish businesses is make sure you're solving a customer problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's in big businesses, you get very fixated on, uh, you know, different ideas from different departments, um, particularly in creative departments where there's an element of judgment, but the more you can focus in on what it is you're solving for people and the value that you add, 
um, the more chance you'll have of success. Um, and then I think it, uh, my own experiences uh, would tell me to say, you really have to look at your life circumstance. Like is setting up a business sounds super glam <laughs> and um, I'm really, I'm really proud I did it. Uh, if I had, if I could go back and do things differently, I'm not sure I would have ended up with any, I'm not sure I would be anywhere different, but I think I would have been better prepared for the challenges that come with it, both financially um, and in terms of kind of the support that you have around you. So make sure you've got a good network and mm -hmm. good support. And where would you like to see, what are your aims for Escadi? Um, so we want to be known as the single destination to find pre-love fashion. And, um, you know, with the decision to fund ourselves, like maybe that um, destination is in Europe. Maybe it's not global, <laughs> like in a big sort of venture capital type um, vision. Um, but yeah, we want to be, we want to be the single place where you come and find um, pre-loved, pre-loved designer fashion. And the more that we can make it easier for people to find what they need, uh, I think the better off we'll all be because then, you know, takes the impact out of buying something new in the fashion industry overall. And that's really the, that's, that's really the whole gist behind it. Um, yeah. The more we can do that, the better. And we want to have fun. I want to have fun. <laughs> I know, don't we all? <laughs> but I can't wait to see the business grow. I think it's a fantastic idea. And like we, we were talking earlier on and, and said, you know, it's those, those, ideas that people say why doesn't that exist already yeah you know that you know Spot you've on. truly got something uh there with scotty so thank you very much for joining me thank today you. and um if you have liked and enjoyed the podcast today i'd love for you to review uh, to if you'd like if you have liked and enjoyed the podcast today i'd love for you to leave a review and don't forget to subscribe i'll be back next thursday again chatting with another super guest and thanks very much for joining us mm -hmm.